discussion with Dr. Farid Holakou. and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get started, the book of the week for this week that I mentioned Monday is The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes by David Robson. And I'm about 50 pages in and really enjoying the book, uh, starting off talking about what intelligence is or how we've tended to measure it and what maybe it's missed. And even now when I read the subtitle, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes, even the ways that we define smart have tended to be uh, the typical way of looking at intelligence like IQ, and maybe there's much more to it than that. But the book also looks at how sometimes people who have high IQ intelligence can be more prone, not just they can make mistakes, but might be more prone to certain types of mistakes in thinking, which is quite fascinating. So looking forward to finishing that book up and talking about it on Monday night's show. All right, wanted to start off the show today talking about a stand-up comedy special I saw last week um, that I thought was quite interesting and relevant to my show because it was about a comedian's experience with depression. So uh, the comedian's name is Gary Gullman, and he had a stand-up special that was airing, or still is airing, on HBO here in the United States called The Great Depression, kind of a play on depression, and also The Great Depression, which happened, what, in the 1920s, 30s? Um, Anyway, but in this special, he starts off in very dark places, even you see him on stage talking about how depressed he is, but the life, the story uh, goes back and forth, or the special goes back and forth between him doing this stand-up special, but also uh, parts of his life, including showing his mom and his childhood home and asking her a few questions. Even it shows part of a session with him and his wife, with uh, Gary Goldman's psychiatrist, um, and other friends and things in his life as well. But what I thought was interesting is, well, I always like that people uh, talk about mental illness in a public way. Uh, It could be an art or it could just be a statement they're making because that contributes to reducing the stigma we have towards mental illness. One, that it's something we can't talk about, that it's taboo, and then also that it's something that we need to be embarrassed about or ashamed about. So he very, very frankly, very clearly throughout the show and very early on is talking about his depression, that he was very depressed. And he talks about it in what seems to be very real ways, about how he couldn't get out of bed, he couldn't shower, that he was suicidal, and how much it was affecting him, that he had so much guilt and shame, and how he doubted that he could ever work 
again, who as a comedian or make money or take care of himself and his family. And so it's a very real look at how dark depression is. And I think that's also good because one, again, many people are dealing with it. So they'll watch him and they'll say, I can relate at some level. But also for others, depression is one of those things like many illnesses or experiences that until you experience it, it's hard to really know what it's like or it's hard to understand. So when someone says, I was so depressed, I couldn't get out of bed, for a lot of people, that's like, oh, come on, snap out of it or just get, it's in, in your head, so do something about it, which is always funny to me because, yes, it is in your head. We know there's things going on in our brain, but also our body when we're depressed that make us feel that way or can make even getting out of bed seem impossible, but it's a very real thing that people experience. And when people talk about it, it makes it more real and makes it more okay for others to talk about it as well. Actually, I said snap out of it. Uh, and I think I forgot exactly the wording he used, but he talked about growing up in the eighties and nineties and how those were, that was like the first brand of antidepressant was just snap out of it, which points to how before we really didn't think of depression as this thing that required treatment or was really real. It was just something you had to just snap yourself out of or, you know, people even now will still say fake it till you make it or positive thinking or pretend like you're okay. None of which really get to the root of a real problem, which is depression, which is really an illness. Uh, he also goes through different treatments he went through. I thought that was interesting. He lists the the medications he was on and kind of in a funny way saying how eventually his psychiatrist just gave him different medications at Rhyme and called him Dr. Seuss. But uh, he really has gone through many medications. And I myself, the more I'm looking into the standard medication for depression, antidepressants, the SSRIs, seeing a lot of research showing that they're less helpful than we thought, um, that there are a lot of issues and even people withdrawing from them can have some very significant withdrawals, not to say that they haven't helped millions of people. So I'm not saying if you're taking them and they're helping you that you should stop, but that even this name antidepressant to me is almost a little bit unfair because it makes it that that's the depression drug when really maybe it's not or there should be other alternatives. And so even for him, Gary Goldman, this comedian, as he shares his story, he talks about how they weren't quite enough. And so he tries all these medications and therapy, and it doesn't seem to quite be enough. He even does try ketamine, um, something that I've talked about on the show recently, and is being used for treatment-resistant depression, meaning depression that doesn't get better with the first line of defenses like therapy and the traditional medications that are used. And he does say ketamine did help in some ways. It was very good, very pleasant, but unfortunately for him, the effects weren't long lasting. And so he says it's great and he does speak about it in a positive way, but it wasn't quite the right fit for him. And that's really the case with almost any treatment. It's not going to be for everyone, but something like ketamine can help a lot of people and especially help people that aren't being helped by other types of medications and treatment for depression. But eventually he goes and tries ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. Um, by the way, I feel like I'm doing a huge spoiler alert for his special, but actually I think it's still worth watching. And it's not that it's a suspense thriller, but I'm giving you some of the points that I thought were interesting. But so he eventually tries electroconvulsive therapy. Uh, and I think that was uh, also good for him to talk about because ECT has a very bad reputation, and he talks about that. 
how it used to be called electroshock therapy, which to me almost sounds worse, but he says they uh, felt like maybe they needed to emphasize the convulsions more, so they had to add that into the name. Um, but then also the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was a movie depicting a mental hospital, and some of the most horrific scenes are when the patients are forced to receive electroshock or electroconvulsive therapy. So people have this very, very bad association with that type of treatment, that it's inhumane and barbaric and that people get hurt because they're even, you know, they spasm and they have these convulsions. Um, but it's done very differently now, which is what he talks about. You get an anesthetic, so the body doesn't convulse and you don't have those kind of spasms and things where you can hurt yourself and um, people can have some memory loss and things. I don't think he talked about that, but uh, but that usually tends to go away. And again, we're talking about some of these minor um, side effects or issues that people deal with, but also the alternative is feeling suicidal, feeling like you can't get out of bed, feeling so depressed that life doesn't feel like it's worth living. So we're talking about doing a treatment because other things are not working and because what you're dealing with is really significant. So he says that the ECT was helpful for him, and that's great. Um, and he still appears from what he was talking about and showed on medication, going to therapy. And I also like that he didn't talk about it in this way of, well, now I'm cured. I don't have to worry about depression anymore because that's not what people usually experience. For some pre people, the depression never quite goes away. For some people, it goes away for years and comes back later. For some people, it never comes back. But it is something you always have to be aware of. And uh, depression is not just like this light switch on-off thing or something that is so black and white, but you just have to be more aware that you are susceptible to become depressed again. And it seems like he's trying to do that. So he doesn't feel like he's completely out of the woods, um, but he is happy to be happier, to be more okay, and to be even doing that special. So I was very happy to see this because of the, some of the reasons I mentioned. Uh, I also wanted to add another point, which I thought was so interesting, because we see how um, families talk or don't talk about mental illness, which is something he mentions in the stand-up, but then they show him and his mom, and they ask the mom, did you notice or think he was a depressed child? And she says, oh, no, not at all and talks about how he was the happiest kid and always had a smile on his face. And so in that way, he couldn't be depressed when we know this is not true. Even people who sometimes look so happy, um, even interestingly, stand-up comedians oftentimes who are so funny and make other people laugh and might seem happy can be very depressed, and many have taken their own lives. Um, a tragic example of that is Robin Williams, who several years ago took his life, and for many people it was so shocking because he was some, someone who made people laugh so much or looked so fun and energetic, and we couldn't imagine that person being depressed, or for a lot of people it was, but it turned out he really was not feeling so good. So that mask of being happy and smiling isn't always mean that inside there's something positive or that the person is happy. Similar to when I talked about Malcolm Gladwell's book Monday about a mismatch or that thought of transparency that we think that however someone looks on the outside must match what is going on in the inside. And especially with things like this, we know it's not the case. Often he who laughs loudest is the most sad inside. And so that was interesting to see his mom almost in denial 
of his son's depression, at least as a kid, and not seeing the signs. And then right after his mom shares those thoughts, Gary shows this book that he said he made, I think, in second or third grade or as a child called The Lonely Tree. And so it's kind of, uh, he's almost laughing while he's sharing it because he's saying, how how could you not tell with this book that I'm writing that somehow there was some kernel of truth that I was like this tree feeling lonely and sad. And so this for me was, in a way it was funny now because now we see that he's okay, but also it's laughable or sad in the sense that we see this so often in families that they don't want to see that maybe their child is not okay. They don't want to acknowledge that maybe their child is sad or depressed or has some other issue. Or I mention all the time that I'll hear from parents, both personally or professionally, oh, my child said something about killing himself or suicide, but I think he was just in a bad mood or, you know, teenagers get moody or they just say things or he was just threatening or whatever is the case, but somehow we just dismiss it as not being real or we won't even acknowledge it to that point will pretend like it never happened. And I think that's very unfortunate because, yes, sometimes people will hide what's there. Sometimes they'll show us, but sometimes they might seem like they're not telling us, but they might show us in other ways if we truly listen or look. If we have genuine curiosity for how they are doing and are open to the possibility that they are not okay and really listen to that. If your child makes a very dark song or poem or something. It doesn't mean they have to be depressed and they're really doing poorly, but you want to take note of that. Be aware that maybe that is their way of expressing something that is harder for them to express directly. They maybe say it in a song or they say it in a joke or they write about it, but they might be telling us something. They might not even realize they're telling us that. So it's not always this cry for help consciously, but it could be an unconscious cry for help. And this is why art therapy and art can be so helpful in therapy really for all ages because people will often express things unconsciously that they're not even aware of, which might reveal more of what's happening on inside of them than even they are aware of that they're willing or wanting to share. But to me, that was a very big moment, seeing his mom in somewhat of a denial about her son being depressed as a child because he was smiling, because he was happy, which again, just because your child is smiling all the time, uh, if anything, that could be a red flag if they're smiling all the time. If they're never showing you any sadness, that probably means they're not really showing you what's going on on the inside. Does that mean they have to be depressed? No, but it could mean that they're afraid to be open with you emotionally, and that's for you to try to figure out. But especially in this case where he also showed an example of this story he wrote, an illustrated book where he was talking about this lonely tree clearly in some way showing his loneliness or that he might have been more unhappy than his mom realized, um, but that was totally missed. And in hindsight, it's very easy to look at that and say, well, she should have known, but just something for us to be aware of, to try to be more cognizant and mindful of what we see in the ways that our children might express certain things to us. So if you can get access to it, I would recommend that it was Gary Goleman is the comedian's name. He's done specials in the past, but this one is just released called The Great Depression. He gets into detail about his own depression, how dark it was, and also the treatment. And it's also funny. Um, so I think it's a really entertaining watch. So I would recommend that, but wanted to start off the show with that. All right, let's go to a commercial break. 310-441-0555. We'll be right back.
studio number 3104410555. In the first segment, I was talking about the stand-up special by Gary Goldman, The Great Depression. Uh, he talks about his depression. He talks about the treatment, also how dark it was. And I wanted to talk a bit more about art um, and how it can be used to express ourselves, but also maybe some thoughts that some people might not agree with, but I do want to hear if you agree or, of course, disagree so I can get your feedback on this, which I'll talk about what I mean later on. So the first part, though, which I hope people will agree with, is that we can use art as a very good way to express ourselves and to express pain and express things in a way that we might have a hard time verbally. Uh, I talked about the book Mind in Motion. I think it was Barbara Tversky a couple weeks ago, and I really thought that was a very interesting book that made me think differently. And I think it's funny because it was about how we think, and we tend to think it's only in words or that words are the ways that thought is made up. But really, she was arguing that it's more about the visual and even more how our movement and space was more important. But in general, just made me think about how it's not just about words. There's more to it than that. And I think that's why art can be so meaningful, because sometimes our feelings, we can't put it into words. We don't know how. And that's why you might hear a song and it might make you feel like you want to cry or make you feel happy more than just if someone said some words or told you about something sad or happy. The music just taps into something much deeper. And similarly, when we express ourselves, we can at times tap into something deeper that we might not even verbally or consciously have access to, but just comes out in a certain way. And the research shows that art can be a good way to express ourselves, even if you're not good at it. I think the article I read even said something like, uh, art therapy or doing art is helpful even if you suck at it or something playful like that. Um, but that's the truth. It's not about it being good or something that even could or should be presented to others or be in a museum or performed somewhere. It's about the expression. The, that's the piece that makes it uh, helpful or healthy for us to express ourselves in a way that we might not be able to otherwise, which means that you don't have to be good. Because a lot of people think, well, I want to draw, but I'm not good at it. Well, it doesn't matter. Just draw for yourself. Or when we dance or we sing for ourselves, it doesn't mean it necessarily will be performed, but I'm sure most people will relate, as I definitely can, that it feels good just to be singing while you're in the car or in your home or in the shower. You have a good time. Probably most of us won't be performing anywhere anytime soon, but that doesn't mean that it's not good for us or doesn't feel good. So art can be an incredible way to express ourselves. And then also it is a great way that we express ourselves and connect to one another. And that's what can make art so meaningful and impactful is that people write a poem, sing a song, um, act and make a movie. And it makes us connect to something within ourselves, connect to others, and that could be really good. But the part I was going to get into that I said um, some people might not agree, and I'd want to hear people's thoughts on this. Um, and also I should add, sometimes people ask me, well, I have a question I want to call in, but it's not related to the topic. And I might start the show talking about anything, but you can always call about the topic or about anything else. It doesn't have to be related to that. But this is what I wanted to talk about for the, for the rest of this segment, is that art is something where we need to be able to express ourselves and we uh, it, it only in a way can work if people are allowed to express themselves freely. That's part of art and that's where censorship can get in the way. 
is that when we tell people you can't talk about this, you can't do this, you can't talk in this way, or you can't make music that's this way or that way, that's a problem in letting people express themselves. And that's one thing. But on the at the same time, I don't think that means that an artist is completely not responsible for any impact their art might have on others or on society or on the culture. And so by that, I mean that you can, of course, express yourself in any way. And hopefully your art will be something that others can relate to. But I think sometimes people think that because it's art or because it's stand-up comedy or it's music, you can say anything and it doesn't matter the result. So if you make a song that is hateful and might, let's say, promote something negative, some people argue, well, it doesn't matter. Because it's art, because it's music, you're allowed to do that. And I'm not necessarily saying we should make a law to outlaw it and make it impossible for someone or against the law or illegal, but that as an artist or as anyone, we have to think about what we are saying or creating and take some level of responsibility for that. And everything I say on my show, for example, I am responsible for what I am saying and what I'm expressing and the effect that could have. Now, let me go to one extreme. This doesn't mean that if you make a song that says, let's love one another, and someone says, oh, well, I listened to your song and I interpreted that as an ironic thing, and then I went and killed people, so you're responsible for that effect. No, of course, I'm not saying that you're responsible for any conclusion or any effect that you're music or your art has on others, but that you can't just think that because it's art, this is my opinion, that any opinion or anything you express is okay. So if you're promoting racism or stereotypes in some way, that it doesn't matter because it's music or it's art or it's comedy. I love stand-up comedy and I know a big part of what can make things funny is sometimes pushing the envelope, going a little bit farther than people are comfortable, pushing them out of their comfort zone. And I think that can be good. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that anything you joke about is okay because it's comedy or because it's a joke. And this, of course, happens in real life and also in art. So looking at real life, you see that in a lot of ways, people use jokes and humor in their communication to express feelings or topics that they're uncomfortable talking about. So someone is angry at someone in their life and they don't know how to express it directly or they feel bad about expressing it directly or they'll be judged or they'll judge themselves. So they say it in a joke and they think, well, it's a joke, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't make it bad. But you see this very often in relationships where one member of the couple won't think the joke is very funny or maybe someone keeps making the same types of jokes, but they don't want to look at it as anything more than a joke. And I'm not saying you should spend 20 minutes dissecting every joke everyone ever makes to understand the full depth of what might be underneath and un analyzing it and, uh, you know, dissecting it. But doesn't mean we should ignore it either. And even with ourselves, if you recognize you keep making jokes that are self-deprecating, putting yourself down in a certain way, could that mean something? Or you keep making jokes about money with your friends. Could it be that you have some issue when it comes to money? or jealousy, or whatever the topic is that you make a lot of jokes about, or you notice a theme, you want to dig a little bit deeper and realize that it's not just about, well, if it's a joke, it means it's okay, or it doesn't mean anything. So not every joke means everything. It has to be analyzed so completely, but we shouldn't just ignore those things either. But coming back to 
the idea of when an artist puts something out there. I think some people don't like this idea of me saying at some level they're responsible because they say art needs to be unfiltered and completely open and people have to be able to freely express themselves. And I do agree with that while at the same time recognizing you have to be aware of the impact your art is having. Because if you are promoting sexism in what you are talking about, that itself has an effect that you have to be aware of. What is that effect? And how do you feel about what you're saying? And this also relates to issues of political correctness. And again, this is one of those things where people definitely, I think, go to two extremes. There is one extreme where people think you should be so careful about every word you say that nothing should ever offend anyone in any way. And it, they definitely take it too far where it makes it very difficult for people to talk, even makes it very difficult for people to talk about the topics those people think are important. So we want to talk about LGBTQ rights, but people feel so afraid to use the wrong words because they'll get attacked by people so far on the left that they don't want to even talk about it. So it's actually hindering the progress which is we need to talk about those things. But then there's the other extreme which says that anything is okay no matter what. So it's this reaction to political correctness that means that even if I'm rude or disrespectful or if I'm using a word that is very harsh or judgmental or has a lot of stigma attached to it as far as like a racial slur, that has to be okay too. There should be no censorship at all. And I don't agree with that because... The words we use absolutely have an impact on how we deal with things. The words we've used, for example, in my own lifetime that I've seen have become not okay to talk about gay people, for example, has an impact. We see that it reflects changes in society and itself it also helps us feel more respectful. So to think that the words don't make a difference or that we should never care, I don't agree with that at all. I think that there is somewhere to find a balance where we don't completely shut everyone up where no one can say anything and someone can say one word that maybe some people find is not the right word that's appropriate and that person gets attacked and has to then apologize and feel so bad about it but I definitely don't agree with the other extreme that no matter what anyone can say anything and no one is allowed to say something about that at all or we shouldn't care about the language we use. So similarly when it comes to art we do have to think about the impact our art has. And again, you can make art for yourself that expresses something for yourself, and that's fine. But when you choose to release that art or expose others to it, you have to be aware of what impact it's going to have. Whatever your art is, there's music and things. Like I said, even when I have this show, I do try to think about the impact it's having. I'm hoping a positive one, but I have to be aware of that. And similarly, sometimes people will want to take credit for the good but not be uh, attached to the bad. So if people say, you know, your music has inspired me or I was in a really dark time and it helped me, that's great. Or your music has helped promote unity or make people think about these issues, that's awesome. But then if someone says your the violence in your movies might have a negative effect, now it's like, well, no, you can't even talk about that. And I'm not saying we should have no violence in movies ever or there can't ever be, but that we can't just think that because it's movies, you can put whatever you want in it and not worry about the impact that it has. Or because you're doing stand-up comedy, even if it's really hate-filled, because you're a stand-up comedian, you can say anything you want about anyone. And again, this is where we get into some gray areas because I think we have to be able to push the envelope.
that great art often comes at some of those barriers of what's okay and not okay. And sometimes we'll get it wrong. But I think that we have to be mindful of the impact that we have, that we're not able to just say, because I'm an artist, that means anything I do is all right. And of course, on the other end, doesn't mean that if you're an artist, anything anyone does with your work is your fault. But we have to be reasonable about the impact the things we're doing and the words we're saying have on other people. Once we're deciding to release something out into the world, if you're writing a book, if you're making a song, a movie, we have to think of the impact this is having on the people who will then be exposed to it. All right, let's go to another commercial break. And again, please, if you have feedback, whether you want to call in or write me on social media, let me know what you think. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. How are you? Good, thank you. Um, I was wondering um, if I could share my experience with... Uh, recently, I had something like a mini nervous breakdown. Okay. Which was I would get up in the morning and just cry. And for any any small reason I would cry so um, it was even difficult to go for a walk outside my house you mm. know so I saw a doctor and he gave me Wellbutrin okay okay and then Wellbutrin was um, something in it that I had reaction to and I didn't know so the next day I was so happy and just got up and walked for a block and came back, but I felt very nauseous. Then I looked at the side effects, and it said, you know, if you're too happy, that, that means you're not happy. You're not, something's wrong, you know, like the side effect, okay? Okay. The side of, one of the side effects was? Maybe, of like, was okay. that you, I was nauseous, and I was uh, too ha- extremely happy. After a day or two, I was taking mm-hmm. it, okay? So I stopped it, and my doctor said, stop it too, and this was... But the good thing it did for me was that it gave me a push. So I got up, and I, my mind again believed that I could walk without mm-hmm. crying for a block. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah, that's, well, that's also something we tell um, most patients, or even with ketamine that's now being used, or medic, any medication, usually we don't think of medication as the full solution. But the analogy I sometimes use is like you're in a dark you know, well almost, and it's too hard for you to climb out completely, but the medication might give you a boost to at least get you up a little bit, and then you have to climb the rest of the way. So I almost never think of the medication as the full solution, but yes, it but can help you. You were supposed to get the reaction in two days, and you were supposed to get it gradually in three weeks. So the way I got the reaction, it was a negative reaction, but I in see. the end, was to my advantage. Yeah, and well, also with some people experience so with the Wellbutrin is in the traditional SSRI medication for depression, but even with the SSRIs, especially, they usually say you have to wait a few weeks to see mm-hmm. benefits because it takes that time for the medicine to to create the changes that I guess you know help people but what a lot of people experience is a placebo effect that they think well I'm taking something for my depression and they sometimes report they're already feeling better and placebo is one of those interesting things because in a way we say it's like not real we think of it as not real but it could be very real and people can feel it and then they might even 
uh, get some benefits that help them a lot. So who's to say that makes it fake or not real? If it's helping them, it's helping them. So a lot of people can feel like if I'm taking a pill for my depression, I'm already feeling better. That hope well, itself. I, I want to tell the people who feel tired and cry, it's real. It's a, it's a disease. Yeah. It's like catching a cold, you know. It's it just my mind was, was tired, you know, because of, since my child was two years old and now he's 40 years old, mm -hmm. I've been having problems visiting him. And now I can't see him still. And I was hoping and hoping and hoping. And then one day I broke. I mean, you know, my, how do you say it? My mind just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. So I decided, I, I became, you know, cried for every little thing. And, and mm. so, anyway, now I'm seeing a therapist, and I'm sorry that I can't see you because you don't accept my insurance, and I wish you did, but um, she's helping me, and I'm doing that. So I was going to share that. Plus, I was going to ask you that um, when you talked about art. Let me, before you get into that second part which i want to let you share i'm i'm very happy you're, you're seeing therapy and you're getting help and i'm glad you're sharing your story for people to hear that because i think a lot of times we don't know what depression is like or we don't get it and people think well if i'm laughing sometimes am i depressed or depression has to mean just sadness but like you said sometimes it could be more a feeling of fatigue or maybe you just cry at random times or you might feel more sensitive but it's a very real thing and i hope people will get help and will seek out treatment because like you said with a cold uh, we need to sometimes take medicine for that cold similarly for for depression you might need either medicine actually or to go to therapy which could be like the medicine and also what could be tough about mental illness is in a way it's an invisible pain if you break your leg people see it and they can see it in an x-ray but if you say you're feeling depressed they just think you're being yeah. weak or asking for attention or you can mm -hmm. just snap out of it but it's mm -hmm. not so simple but like you said it's a very real thing and thankfully there are very real treatments that can help people but we always help they'll, they'll seek that out so thank you for sharing that experience yeah. i hope people and also you know i got backache headache yeah. there are some physical symptoms mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I, i'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna tell your people who hear you that, that it's the best thing to do to just See a doctor before even it gets to that stage, because it won't get to that stage if you have a therapist. Yeah. And you know, and she will, she or he will see how you're changing, how you're, um, you know, they can diagnose you much faster. And before you get that, I was so weak I couldn't go walk a block. Mm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And the physical and uh, there's definitely physical symptoms that come with most mental illnesses, just like mental the medical illnesses can lead to, uh, you know, emotional issues as well. There's a obviously a big interplay. But again, I'm happy you, you're seeking treatment. And I hope people listening will take that as their own um, lesson of thinking for themselves. OK, if I'm not feeling well, or if I'm feeling similar to what you've experienced, they'll get help. So thank you for sharing that. I know you wanted to make a comment about the the I'm art piece. Yeah. Therapy and once a month massage is good for everybody. I wish we had the money to do that. But anyway, about art. Yes. When I'm doing ceramics, which at that time I something I really loved, I didn't even want to go near it. But when I make ceramic stuff, stuff I always make it very um, not complete or not um, perfect. Or not perfect. Like um, other people try to make a very round bowl of something very perfect and I don't and I said life is not perfect 
But does it come from my self-esteem being low, or what does that mean? <laughs> well, these things, you know, it, it's when we try to analyze art, it's not like there is some dictionary where we can say for sure if you're doing that, it has to mean this, you know. So could it be related to self-esteem and maybe you are sabotaging yourself in some way, maybe. Or maybe for you, it does have this meaning of showing that life is never going to be perfect and work out exactly like you want. So you, you like to do that. But so there could be those various ways of looking at it um, that maybe you don't want it to be perfect for the reasons of you don't think you deserve something to look so good, or it could be that feeling of this is more, let me express life in this way, or my own life has not been perfect and I've had these ups yeah. and downs. So it represents that more, you know? Well, definitely my son won't let me feel as if I deserve seeing him and his children. He gives me that feeling, but since most of the people in the ceramic room, almost 99% make it perfect, and I'm the one who doesn't, I thought something's wrong. Well, what what do they tell you there? What feedback have you gotten from people in your ceramics class? Well, they say we can tell your work from miles that you know this is your work. Yeah. Because you know, and I tell them I don't. I I definitely on purpose don't want to do it perfect. Hmm. Well, it's inter- well, it's interesting, you know, the way you say that, I, like I said, there could be an artistic expression of saying life isn't perfect, so I intentionally make my pieces not look perfect for that. But I'd want you to think, maybe try, because even if you try to make it perfect, let's be honest, it's not going to be perfect. Now, maybe the things you're doing make it more clear that it's not perfect. So you can just experiment with that, try to make it in this quote-unquote more perfect way, and you might see some feelings come up for you that might give you even more information about why you might want to make it the way you do and not the other way, you know, is it? Oh, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, we always want to try to, you know, that's the, the good thing you could do with that experiment. And I think it's great you said at first you didn't want to even get near it, but then now you did that, and that's what a lot of people experience with different types of hobbies, but especially artistic expression. Many times it's not something we would have ever thought we, we would do, but we can find it very helpful, so I think that's cool that you've, you've tried that. Thank you so much. Sure, Dr. thanks. Dr. Nice talking to you. And I hope you have a session. I have the book of Why Do I Do That? I'm reading it with a friend. I wish we could read it with you yeah. as a professional well, person. Too. Well, I'm sure you guys can do great on your own with the book club. I've thought about starting a, a book club in Los Angeles for meetings please every do, so often. Please. I'll keep that in mind, but thank you for your call and for that comment. And advertise it. Okay, thank if I do, you. you'll thank know. You thank much. you very much. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Um, so that was you know interesting. She did share some of her experience with with art, and like I said, with her, it's not always so clear. So I don't want people to think that if you paint something for sure, we can tell you it's this. And even when we analyze art in therapy, you try to understand the patient and understand their context. That gives you a better understanding of the art rather than just. Um, saying because we see this, we know this for sure. Sometimes there's some general themes we'll look for, and people who analyze art and do art therapy really can get more in-depth and might take a lot more into account, but it's not so black and white. And also what we experience in art therapy or when people analyze art is also what you experience as a general observer. You look at a painting and you feel something, and that's what we pay attention to is the feelings that come up when we... Um, just experience the art that very often can tell us what the artist is feeling. So you've seen maybe some famous painters throughout their life and you can see some huge shifts in how they paint. Now, sometimes they've just evolved in their style and technique, 
but you'll see people that have gone through something very horrible and then their paintings become a lot more dark and you feel a lot more darkness or something good happens in their life and you see a pleasant turn in what they express. And I think that could be interesting. You know, actually, this what I just said about things being dark. Um, in that stand-up special, Gary Goldman also talked about how there is this feeling that you have to be dark or you can't be happy in order to make good art. And he was saying he disagrees with that. And actually, he saw it the other way, that maybe when he was in such a dark place, it was hard for him to make the art, to make something. And I think it's not so clear because I think sometimes that darkness can really inspire some art. doesn't mean you have to be depressed. But we do have this, um, maybe it's a, I don't want to call it a myth because it's not, not completely that, but this almost like idea, like this idealized view of the depressed and sad and pained artists, that they have to be in pain in order to create good art. And I, I don't think that has to be the case, and I really hope that's not the case. I think sometimes we connect to our pain when we're creating art, and that can be very important, but it doesn't mean we have to be suffering so much. Being connected to the pain and the emotion and the things we've gone through can be good, but it doesn't mean that while you're creating the art, you have to be in some dark place. So that's something to keep in mind. But uh, thank you to that caller first for sharing her experience, because I think for a lot of people, we hear the word depression, but we might not know what it really looks like, or we might not know we're in it because we have these misconceptions that depression means you are sad in this way, or you have to be suicidal, or you have to be crying all the time. Um, people especially judge others this way. They say, well, he or she can't be depressed because I saw them laughing the other day. And depressed people can still laugh sometimes. Sometimes intentionally they're covering up the pain inside, but also even if they're not, sometimes they'll still laugh. It's not that you experience pure sadness and negativity all the time. You can have some very light and happy moments as well, but feel depressed. And also there's different severities of depression and different ways that it can look. But thank you to her for sharing her story. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. back let's go to another caller radio hamra you're on the air hello thank you thank you for uh, taking my call my pleasure uh, doctor i'm so excited so when i'm talking if you can stop me at any time <laughs> ask me questions okay, sure uh, <laughs> uh, it's about my son uh, it's He's nearly 23. This January, he turns to 23. Okay. And he's in the last year of his uh, studying at uni. Mm -hmm. And um, he's still can't manage his uh, finance. And I'm continuously helping him. And I'm really fed up with this situation. Although the government, they provide some uh, help and support to as a student loan, although he received that, he still help, won't help. Mm -hmm. um, I, I understand, uh, you know, I'm calling from UK, the cost here, the cost of living here is quite a lot. And he paid most of his money to uh, rent because he's living away. Um, however, this summer um, he started working and although he worked and he was uh, get well paid, he still asked me help. Mm -hmm. uh, for my help, and I am sure he could manage easily, but he can't. And I'm a little bit concerned because he had a, he hadn't any good role model in his life. 
and because of that reason i lost my when i because i lost my dad when i was very young i always wanted to make up that um, uh, emptiness in his life mm-hmm. but i think i'm i spoiled him now mm-hmm. that affect my myself as well because it affect my finance as well yeah uh, i know i have got lots of issue myself or lots of complex and i have followed Dr. Holakui's uh, philosophy as a child. I put him in priority always, but I didn't do, maybe I did some wrong, something wrong. But well, I don't know how I can help him now, or okay. uh, that helped me as well. Well, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you did a lot of right things. Of course, some things won't be perfect and um, we'll do wrong or could have done better. Uh, you do have some awareness, I think, which is good that a lot of times because of what we experienced in our childhood, the most common or easiest way to think of it is we'll repeat that. So if our parents were harsh to us, we'll be harsh. But sometimes we go to the other extreme. If we feel like we were missing something in our childhood, we might go to the other side and say, well, in this case, almost like you should give him everything he wants always. Um, and that, that itself can be its own problem. And then what's hard about something like that is that once you've created a pattern, it's hard to change that because if he's used to that, if you want to change that, it's going to be hard for him and for you. And, I understand. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And so and the, I feel guilty and it's hard for him as well. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's the part we have to look at when you say you feel feel guilty. And the change, like we said, is going to be hard, but the guilt can make it even harder because then you might at some level on a logical level, it seems like you're saying, okay, I need to help him spend less or be more in control. But then in emotional level, you have this guilt that if you say no to him in any way, it seems like that somehow you're doing something bad. And so we have to look at that because if we don't deal with that emotional part, uh, you you most likely won't help him in that way because you won't want to. So when you talk about I guilt... I don't get it. What exactly you mean? What I mean is that if you feel guilty by telling him, for example, he has to spend less, then uh-huh. you might not even start the process because you'll already feel bad about it. I see. Yeah. I am with you, yeah. Doctor, you were right. That's happened as a like a um, pattern now. In March, he put me under such pressure when I realized he spended, uh, spent all his... Um, uh, student loan and he had no money he was overdrafted as well uh, I paid lump sum in his account and I um, put like an arrangement I said don't touch that one that's only for your direct debit and I pay you mo- uh, weekly for your food and for pocket money he that worked really well but okay. it it was out of my control because it was um, he he's although he promised he's not going to use that account for anything else he started using that account again for other things. Uh, and again, it affects my finance as well because I, I couldn't carry on like that. Yeah. So I said, shall we arrange, come and sit together, see how much you have got, uh, how much your expenses is, how much your outcome is. Let's work it together. But he didn't do it. He, he just he was looking for like a short uh, solution rather than long-term solution. Um, so I fed up with that situation mm-hmm. and I um, gave him um, some money he wanted and that's it. And again, now it's happened again. He came back again, although he was working all summer and maybe he was earning more than me because I was in the uh, between of ch- changing my um, career myself. So I wasn't earning much this couple of months, like J- July, August, September. Mm-hmm. And he started again, although he was working these three months, 
now he come back to me. He hasn't got his rent to pay, which is quite lonesome now again. And he hasn't got mm, even for mm, he got fined for his car, for instance. He was asking me to pay him, and I really don't know how to do. Where can I stop? Yeah. And I'm hoping this ha- one year, which is last year, finish quickly. I can help. And after that, I told him, if you want to come back home, you are more than welcome. Live with me, but you have to pay to like a board. Or if you want to live away, you don't rely on me. You have to work yourself. Yeah. Well, I understand you want to create a change. And I, you know, it's interesting you're saying it's because financially you can't manage it, which itself, of course, that means you should definitely, you have to do something. You're almost forced to. But I also want you to realize that even if you could do it, by just giving him what he wants and not making him have any consequences or be responsible at all, you're not doing something good. It's just like if your child wants three scoops of ice cream before they even have breakfast, you can't just say, well, I want to give him everything he wants. It's good, you know, rather than, you know, but the way you're saying, which I understand a lot of people get this point, it's like, oh, we're out of ice cream or else I would give him those three scoops of ice cream. But I want you to see that by not giving him everything he's just asking for, it is actually yeah. going to help him, but it's going to be hard because like someone who's used to having, let's say, the ice cream before breakfast or having cigarettes before they eat, they, so they get used I to it. This yeah, it's going to be hard. You're going to have to work on it with him. Now, here's the thing that you're also going to have to realize. As much as you feel like he's the one that's asking for too much, you have to also realize you're the one that has been giving too much. And so because of that, you have to take responsibility, not guilt or blame in a negative way, but that at some level you're responsible for the pattern you've created with your son, which is also good because that means you can help change that pattern. It's not just him. It's going to be about you. Now, let me ask you some other background things. Does he have any other siblings? Myself or him? No, him. Does he have any other siblings? No, you have no, any other no. Kids? He's the only, only child. child. And then is is his father in the picture or involved? I'm afraid no. It's a long story because when we moved to the UK, although he had a good career in, in Iran, uh, unfortunately he couldn't get a good job here. And he was moving from one job to another job. He never been satisfied. Mm-hmm. Although he was, uh, he had two degrees. He never been satisfied, um, and we were we had some issue ourselves together as a relationship. So after um, fourteen years and a half, we divorced, and um, I ended up moving from the matrimonial house and left the house, which was really good house for him, and I moved to a council house, council mm-hmm. estate, and I went under lots of pressure, whereas he had everything ready for himself, and that was exactly the same in Iran. Mm. I was supporting him a lot. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry. That's, that's okay. And hmm. after 10 years, 11 years, now after our divorce, he, he lost that house because he couldn't pay, so the bank took off him, and now he's, unfortunately, he's in prison because of the, some sexual um, problem here. It was assault, but I never believe he has done wrong with that. He is in prison for two years, but I think he's getting only one year. But this even caused a lot of problems because my son doesn't like him anymore. He doesn't want to see him very often. He, Although he sends some letters, he doesn't want to respond. And 
I remember from 2013 when my son was only 60 years old, he used to borrow. His dad used to borrow money from him. Hmm. And it was like I am paying to two people. And I didn't realize that until this March when I checked his bank account. I realized, oh, God, his dad was borrowing money from him. And I'm worried because his dad wasn't never responsible for his son. Mm-hmm. I'm worried if my son get the same attitude of from his dad and not to be responsible. He had a girlfriend at the beginning of his, my son had a girlfriend at the beginning of his education, starting university, he broke up with him. He gave me good reason. He said, mom, she wants to get settled. I am too too young for him, uh, for her, and I need to just move on. I accepted after, although I wasn't very happy because now he's not in any relationship. I know he's seen girls, but he keeps telling me, oh, mom, it's really good when you are not worried to buy anything for your girlfriend uh, during Christmas, for birthday, and that makes me worried if he's doing the same things as his dad used to do. Well, that part, I, uh, I, you know, you're going to worry about a lot of things, so I'm not just say don't worry about it, but I don't want you to get too concerned about that like how he's going to act in that way and you can't control that as much and what you described it's like a, uh, there's a lot of stress and pain you've had to deal with in, in what's happened but also we see the pattern is there for you that you give too much or you and you don't take care of yourself first but also you give too much in a way that doesn't even help the other person and so That's now true. you want to you, you have to try to change that now what we would in a way we can say that it seems like some of your relationship in general relationships, but even with your son especially, is what we can call a codependent relationship. And so I would recommend you look that up or even read a book, Codependent No More by Melody Beatty. Uh, Sorry, can you repeat this one? Sure, sure. Codependent, so it's the word dependent and before that co, C-O, so Codependent No More by Melody Beatty. Because it seems like you have that pattern of, uh, you know, giving too much that you take on responsibility and blame yourself and have guilt for things that aren't your responsibility. And then you create this relationship where, like I said, as much as you don't like it, at some level you want to have this relationship with your son. And so changing it will be hard for you too. It's not that he's the only thing in your way. The thing that's really in your way is yourself, that it's hard for you to make the change. You can't believe since 2013 I was working seven days a week mm. because I, I I needed money and I was helping him a lot for everything and now I ended up having lots of health issues. Mm. But that, I'm still working. Well, I'm, I, I want you to take care of yourself more, which means you know, hopefully you don't have to work as much, but also get to take care of yourself. And the good news is, like I said, it's going to help your son too in the long run. But we have to be ready that at the beginning he's going to resist it because he's used to something. You know, it's like I said before, if someone is smoking a pack of cigarettes a day and you want to make it less, of course, at first they're going to resist that. But we know that it's going to be better for him, too. So we have to be willing to, to face that. But the, one of the ways you'll have to do that is you have to be firm with him, but you can be firm, but also loving, meaning that you can let him know. To me, you can let him know that... Um, some of these things financially that have been going on for a while or that are happening now, we need to change. And you could take responsibility and say, you know, it's also, it's my responsibility and my fault that things have become the way they are. 
I haven't been responsible from my side about how we've spent money, how much I've given you, really sharing with you what I can and can't do. So you take the responsibility from your side, and it's not about blaming him either, but then let him know that we have to make some changes, that what I've been giving you is not enough. And even you could share with him in a way that's more calm rather than attacking, that you're up, you are hurt also that at times you felt he didn't spend it in ways that you felt okay or he was not aware of that. But again, you let him do it. But here's also the part that's going to be hard for you. A lot of people will talk about things, but when it comes to actually being firm, they won't do it. So they say, you know, I told him if he spends another $200, I'm not going to spend another dollar for two weeks. And then I say, okay, so then what happened? Well, he did it and then he needed money, so I gave it to him again. So if you make some kind of boundaries with him, and you make them with him, I would say, of course, in a way that makes sense for you, you have to do the hard part. It's going to be sticking to it. So he's going to ask you for something and you have to be able to say, I I know you still, you want me to get more money. And I know in the past I told you I wouldn't and I would, but I I have to. I appreciate what you are saying. The reason I, I didn't stick to it because I was always worried because he hasn't got any relatives here, any family, any granddad, any anybody here. I didn't want he just do something wrong. I was worried if his friends encourage him. Oh, if you sell, for instance, sell sell the drug, maybe you can earn more money. So it's easy. So why don't you do that? I was worried about these things. So I always help him and help. Um, I didn't stick on my word, but yeah. I appreciate what you are saying. Yeah. Well, I think it's you know realizing that of course I mean he could do lots of things, and you can't prevent him from doing. He might even want more money and he could go do something like that. But the more you fuel him, the more it makes him think that's how life goes, that he just gets whatever he wants. And so it's yeah. good. Even what you're saying about in relationships, maybe you're right, but we have to, the only thing you can do, we can't control who he dates or how he dates, but you have a big control or at least impact on your relationship with him and how he sees things go. That he sees that, you know what, it's not always whatever you want, whenever you want it. Sometimes there's consequences or sometimes you might want something and you don't get it. And that's not bad. That's part of life. Even you're saying he's a student. To be a good student, sometimes you want to study or, I mean, you want to go out, but you have to study. Your friends are about to go party and you have to sit in your room and read your book. So it's about delaying gratification. So again, I want you to realize as much as it might feel like you might feel guilty, like I'm hurting him or I'm doing something he doesn't like, even if someone doesn't like something in the moment, it doesn't mean we're doing something bad because sometimes we're actually helping them in a bigger picture long term. So your son, you know, even when he was a kid, maybe he didn't want to do his homework. He wanted to go play and you maybe had to show him that, you know, right now I know you want to play, but right now we have to finish your homework and then you can play. And he yeah. might get sad or he might get upset, but we say we understand that it's good for them. Or you take your child to get a vaccine and yeah. they give them the needle and the baby starts crying. So if you just say, well, I don't want my baby to cry, I'm not going to give him a vaccine. You're going to potentially hurt them much bigger in the long run. So sometimes we have to hurt them in smaller ways to actually do something that helps them in the long term. And in this case, it's not just about hurting him. You're actually giving him real life consequences and you have to take care of yourself. Now, one thing I'll say is if you start telling him, I don't want you to present yourself as the victim saying that, look how hard my life was. You made my life so hard because you have to take responsibility that you've created this. You can tell them it's not okay. I can't keep doing this, but I don't want you to blame him for all that you've suffered easily either, because sometimes people go to that extreme. First, they take it all on and then they dump it back on on the other people. Blame him. No, I never blame. Who do you mean? Your son. No, your son. 
No, I never okay. blame him. I I know, and I, I never blame him. But I know he has done. He does. Um, he doesn't think um, carefully. For instance, he this. Um, I'm sure, pretty sure, he decided to go away and study because that course was even close by to us. Is university close by to us? But he didn't pick that university literally because he wanted to move away from me. And th the reason he wanted because he wanted to um, explore uh, living away from home, which I appreciate. That's fair <laughs> enough. I, I didn't have this chance when I was in Iran. My mom was very controlling, and I let him to do it. But when he comes home, he doesn't come home to visit me. Now you told me talk to him and just explain. Can you believe, doctor, he doesn't give me even 10 minutes to talk? He's mm. always in a rush. When he comes home, he doesn't come to visit me. He comes home to do his DJ stuff, doing things, because he, uh, although he's at uni, but he's, a st he's doing DJ things, and every weekend he's at party uh, preparing DJ. When he comes home, he just meets his friends and does uh, the DJ things. So he doesn't literally spend time with me. I'm always in a rush. When I cook Iranian food, I'm very excited. I spend hours, but he just come. He doesn't have time to eat that event. But I, I am okay. I just put it in packet and say, okay, take with you when you go home. Just have it there. And does he but, take it? Sorry. Does he take it when you pack it for him? Oh yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, that's fine. I mean, as, yeah. and like, I'm you know, as long as you don't blame him because you put hours into it, maybe he doesn't want it. That's that's fine. But you know, oh, you yeah. might have to ask him. Say, we need. I I want to talk to you about and find not just ask him in that moment. You might have to plan with him that I want to have a conversation. I need twenty thirty minutes of your time. And yeah, doctor, I don't blame him at all. Okay. But I know he has got the, that guilty feelness himself. And I think he picked from me. Well, that's why and I don't want I you to give him more. Because even when I talk to you, I know you've went through a lot of pain and there's a lot going on. But you might yeah. even make him feel guilty by saying, even if you don't tell him, but tell, showing him how much you're suffering too much. And that might make I him see. feel too afraid to talk to you about it. If you say, look, I'm so sick, I'm doing this, I'm doing... And then he gets, he's going to... What happens is he freaks out and he'll just want to get away from you. So that's why I'm saying really get to a point where you feel more you can talk about it in a calm way. It's about yeah. how we want to make things better for both of us. You're taking responsibility. You know what? I've been the one that actually even you take more responsibility because from a young age, he was the kid, you were the parent and you created this pattern. But you're yeah. saying, I do want it to change for both of us. And so this is what yeah. I'm thinking. And you have a conversation with him and you try to make it work. And like I said, try not to make it too emotional because usually it's going to make him shut down. So if you make it, I want you to know I'm doing this not because I don't love you. You know, sometimes we yeah. get too dramatic. It's because I love you so much. And then you cry. Look how much I've been hurting. And then he's just going to shut down. So you have to try to I keep see. it calm. And remember, you don't have to feel guilty about what you're doing. In the long run, you're helping him too. You're showing him that I take care of myself, you take care of yourself, whoever you're with in the future, they have to be okay, you have to be okay. So it's actually yeah. a good thing, um, right. but I hope you can do that and, and make that change for, for you and him. Oh, thank you, doctor. Can I track this um, on the um, SoundCloud? Uh, yeah, this yeah. I'm going to upload it. It'll be on my SoundCloud and the podcast probably by tonight. 
Because LA I was time. trying to get hold of him while I'm talking to you. He said he's at work, so I'm going to re- record <laughs> it and send it to him. Thank you, Doctor. Sure, and then he can call in, too. I would love to have to. Oh, Sorry? my pleasure. I said he can also call in. You know, I would love to talk to him to hear it from his side, too, but I I'm so happy we know. got to talk. Doctor, I knew if I ring earlier and talk to your dad, he would put me in the corner, so <laughs> I didn't want to this happen. That's why I rang you. Well, I'm glad we got to talk. I'm very happy we got to talk, and I hope it was helpful. <laughs> And am I allowed to ring you back at any time? Yes, later? of course. Yes, it would be my oh, pleasure thank to you. talk. You know, Doctor, it's such a pleasure, such a great uh, uh, opportunity for everybody because you are exactly between my age and my son's age, uh-huh. in, the, in between generation. So you understand him as long as you understand me. Thank you well, so, so much. Well, I'm so happy. I hope help. I was helpful. It was nice talking to you. Take care. <laughs> thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, going into another commercial break. We'll be right back. back let's go to another caller radio hamra you're on the air hello uh, are you talking to me yes doctor? i am thanks for calling um, uh, thank you for having me um i mm, i will ask you my question and then i will uh, try to explain uh, a little bit uh, more that um, what uh, i'm going to uh, what to explain the question more okay uh, are you still hearing me yes i, I am have your voice yes please go ahead uh, as I was a teenager, uh, around when I was uh, 13, 14 years old, I had a sister that my sister became very, very sick, and it lasted for several years. And uh, I think it affects me really bad that now, uh, every time that I want to be happy, that I want to have uh, feelings, and I want to have some uh, happiness in my life, that those memories come to my mind, and it sucks. It it sucks out of me all the feelings, all the passion, all the. I mean, like, I became very cold, very disappointed, very silent, and uh, how to say? I feel like life is so. Uh, it's not. It's not good. It's bitter. I mean, like, uh, it's. Uh, it's painful and uh how and, how uh, old are you now uh, i didn't realize so, your question sure how old are you now i am now 32 years old 32, okay. and i now i can explain the what was the my my sister's problem if yeah. you okay um, my sister uh, had, uh, he, he, she was three years old at that time when I was 13 and 14, and she got uh, diabetes. Mm. How to say? Diabetes, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at that time, we didn't have that much uh, good doctors, and we didn't have that much uh, knowledge about diabetes. And, and she was very uh, small, so she didn't know when the blood sugar is going down or mm. when it's high so she was and the doctors were, were uh, injecting a lot of uh, uh, insulin for her uh-huh. so she was having uh, these uh, insulin shocks all mm. the time especially at nights for example for several years this happened over maybe 300 times and for oh. example we were all sleeping at night 
and then around four or around five, she be, she starts shaking, and it was uh, she started being she couldn't breathe, uh, her eyes rolled back, and you know all those symptoms that are very scary and very and we did, we haven't seen anything like that at that age. Uh, it was very scary for me. It was very it was really terrible, and. Uh, so, and it was very, very painful for me, as well as for the rest of the family. For example, I had a sister that she was so scared that she, she every time she, my younger sister became like that, she, she went and she hid. Uh, she would mm. uh, close her eyes and uh, hold her ears to not to hear anything, and she come back after two or three hours when she, she, she realized that everything is okay. So I mean, this was a very a big trauma for for all of you, very painful and uh, to deal with. And I think the way you described the first thing that came to my mind, I know your sister is still alive, the youngest one. Yes, uh, now she's fine, she's okay. But uh, uh, recently, after twenty years, she has uh, some uh, symptoms of neuropathy. I mean, like, it, it sounds like after 20 years, uh, her body is getting affected by diabetes. Uh, and, and actually, recently when she told me that, I felt all the feelings that I had when I was a teenager. Yeah. You know, I, I can explain that, for example, after she was like that for several years, but later when I grew up, I took her to a good doctor in Tehran, and they changed the insulin doses, and they teach, they taught us how to about diabetes, and she stopped those shocks. But actually, those uh, insulin shock happened so many times. So she, her growth was uh, how to say uh, mm -hmm. re retarded or mm -hmm. not retarded, but I mean like yeah. delayed. Yeah, delayed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, but but well, let me let me I, stop. I tried to help her, and yeah. she came back to normal. Now she is fine. Yeah. yeah, well, that's that's great, and I mean that I'm glad she's doing better. Although now you're saying she's having some more health concerns. But what I thought of when you first started talking, and I'm glad she actually did live, because the reason I'm saying that is what it seems that you might be feeling is what we can call survivor's guilt. This feeling that you know, and we we think of siblings sometimes we think well they're competing and we want to get more attention than our siblings which is true but at the same time we also identify with our siblings a lot and so there does seem to be a lot of guilt you have that why was she suffering and not you why did she have to go through this pain and so it seems like when you experience life as good or pleasurable or something good happens you almost feel like you don't deserve it because why should she have to suffer so much and you don't and so you somehow, somehow to deal with that guilt, you try to sabotage your own happiness, your own good feeling to, to make it to make things feel OK, because it feels uneasy for you to be lying in your bed comfortable. And she's having these shocks from the, the you know, her blood sugar, or the insulin that were so painful to watch. And I think you're still carrying that guilt with you that to, in order to make things OK, in order for somehow to make good from her suffering you have to make sure you don't enjoy life too much. So it's like there isn't such an imbalance. Does that make sense? That makes completely uh, true. I wanted to tell you that I have that feeling, and, and you, you got it very, very well. Thank you very mm -hmm. much. That's exactly the, what the problem is. 
and also there are other things that are attached to that uh, to that uh, to for example uh, this is one of them and later i want you to uh, to tell me that how can i get uh, get out of this okay and but the other thing is that for example i was at that age i was uh, starting to have sexual feelings mm. and every time and we were a religious family and every mm-hmm. time she was like that she became sick like that i was feeling that it's because probably it's because that i have masturbated or i have done, done something wow. and it's because of me that she became like that <laughs> so uh, i tried to and recently i was reading a book about a teenager that was explaining her sexual feelings and i hit the book on the wall and i asked myself why i did that that why i became so angry and i realized that at that age every soft feeling every emotional feeling i probably i turned it into anger to control to to not to do anything to not to for example i'm sorry but to not to masturbate or mm-hmm. not to take action on it i turned my desires into anger to control them something like that i don't know exactly yeah well that i mean that's so complicated but in a way it it can make sense and so it's not just survivor's guilt that I was talking about even worse than that because of this connection you had made about sexual feelings and sexual acts of masturbation you felt guilty that God was in some way punishing her for what you were doing and so it's complicated with a lot of things but even that direct connection that your pleasure leads to her suffering and her pain, it seems like you still have that, even if it's not a sexual pleasure, that if you start to feel good, somehow it brings up this feeling that you should feel guilty or ashamed of that, or that that's going to hurt her in some way. And so you have to somehow ruin it, because if you enjoy something, you are going to hurt her in some way. And so there might be this connection you have between feeling good and guilt and shame and feeling like you're hurting her, and so you don't want to let yourself feel good. It's almost like protecting, you have to protect your sister by making sure you don't enjoy anything too much. And so I think when you saw that in that book, there was something, it was triggering something so deep in you of it's so wrong for a teenager to have sexual pleasure or God is going to punish you. Or maybe even you felt like you were feeling something sexual and you wanted to throw that away or get rid of that. But there seems to be huge and very intense connections you have between your own pleasure and guilt and your own happiness and guilt and that you're even hurting her. And so disconnecting that is going to be difficult. The first step is becoming aware of it, but the disconnection and recognizing that you actually being happy, if anything, is probably going to make your sister happy rather than actually make her sad or that actually physically or hurt her in some way, you know? That's um, that's true and not true. Okay. I think at that age, I... I overcome this kind of thing because I lost my religious beliefs and this kind of thing. I, I mentioned this because I wanted to know that, I, I'm not sure, maybe there are things that are playing that, but the other thing that comes, and it, I, I think it's more important, at that age, I, 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 I how to say, I gave up on life. Mm. I, I remember that I completely gave up on life. I hated God. I hated life i hated myself my parents my family everything so mm. i com- i remember on, up until that age i had feelings and i had empathy but at some pl- at some moment when i got around 17 18 years old i became very cruel very uh, not having any empathy uh, very numb in a way 
and very, how to say, having, I mean, like, I, it, it sounds like I accept li- the reality of life, like I accepted that life is something cruel. It's, mm-hmm. li- it's like something really, how to say, it's uh, something that has no, uh, how to say, no soft feelings. It's, it's, it's something, I'm, I probably, I don't, I don't know the word, but maybe cruel is enough. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I, I, I said, okay, everybody that was having soft feelings or uh, emotional feelings, I was, in, inside me, I was telling that this is fake, this is not real. Life is terrible, life, life is hard. Mm-hmm. So when somebody, before it was like that, I, it was, how to say, they call it probably uh, reaction formation or something like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Every time that uh, somebody had soft feeling inside me, I was saying that this is not life. This is, this is not true. This is fake. I knew that this is the reality of, the reality of my life is difficult, the ri- the, not the reality of their life. Their life, soft feeling and stuff is good for them. And I, I just... Later, I realized that my reality is different from their reality. I experience life as cruel, as difficult, as harsh, mm-hmm. but they experience it dif- differently. Yeah, and maybe this even is as... another thing I wanted to mention. So. Yeah, and you might have even experienced life as so unfair, even, and maybe that was part of exactly. the religious experience, was if we are good people and we're being good you know, religious people, how could my sister be suffering in this way? It just seems so senseless. How could you make sense of that? And it seemed like you're right. I think you chose to just have like this, like you called it reaction formation, which might be what it is. That, and then because of those soft feelings in yourself having caused you so much pain, you started to hate it in everyone else as well and think of them as bad or even fake. And you talked about being numb. And that's why I think it wasn't that you stopped feeling, but you realized it was more dangerous to feel than to not feel. So it was easier just to try to shut off your feelings completely. But you weren't, were not, never able to fully do that. It, ha- it comes out in different ways. Um, but th- the numbness that you tried to experience, it's not going to last. And it's still, your feelings are still going to creep up and come out. And so you try to denounce religion, but also it doesn't mean you're going to get rid of everything you feel within about right and wrong, good and bad, um, uh, uh, punishment and suffering and all of those things. And so I think you're still trying to make sense of that because really it didn't make sense. In a way, we can say, why does it make sense for this three-year-old girl to suffer in this way? She definitely was completely innocent. She obviously did nothing wrong to deserve anything like that. But then here she is suffering so much. And that's why I think that also connection of the survivor's guilt comes in, that how can I be happy and okay if she's suffering, or how can that be fair? And so I think at some level you've tried to equal the playing field by making sure you don't feel too good, somehow feeling like that's making things at least a little bit more fair and just, even though her suffering doesn't mean you have to suffer, or her suffering doesn't mean you're not allowed to enjoy life. I think somehow you've made that connection and it's still hard for you to break. And so when you feel good, you feel like this that feels uneasy for you. It's like you're being lifted in the air rather than feeling good. You're, you feel that you can fall so much or that it's creating this distance between you and her and you try to make things right again by bringing yourself down. It's very true. So, uh, and also I think that... Uh, that that survival guilt plays a big role because when I was thinking 
to myself why, I'm, for example, I am grown up, I am not dependent, me and my sister, we are separated, two different people, and as long as we are, for example, healthy and we are happy, we can enjoy life, and when there is the pain comes, because I've, I was always thinking I'm, I'm not going to enjoy life because pain is ahead, pain is coming, mm, mm-hmm. uh, she's going to be sick, and I'm going to be so sad for her, and I'm going to, mm. uh, stuff like that. So yeah. I said, okay, now she's healthy. At the, this moment, let's live together, and when the pain comes, we will deal with pain, pain together. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that, uh, rationally, I understand this. Emotionally, I yeah. cannot... That's the hard part. How can I... How yeah. can I, think, how can I well, that's the part that, that's always harder, and you're right. The rational is a lot of times very easy, but the emotional is hard because you feel it. Because even, I'm imagining as soon as you feel good, it's like for you a happy feeling has attached to it this negative all these extra things the guilt the shame the anxiety of when is the bad thing going to come and it's hard to to change that and does take some time i always recommend people going to therapy because then you can unpack it more deeply the emotional side because just thinking about it likely won't change it because it seems like logically you understand that you being happy is not in any way hurting her or in any way disrespecting her or minimizing her pain. You are allowed to have your own experience and for it to be good, but it's hard for you to decouple that, detach that from the the guilt and the shame and the anxiety that comes with those feelings you have about her. And so I hope you'll go to therapy to get there because it seems like you're still stuck in that 13-year-old experience and maybe you've changed religious beliefs and the way you look at things but it doesn't mean that emotionally the things have changed. And so the emotional reaction is still the same, even if logically and intellectually you've advanced in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah, so if, if some, I, I don't have the, the, how to say, I cannot go to therapy for some reasons, but I mean like if somebody comes you, come to you with this kind of problem, what is the first step? Or yeah. is there any books or anything that sure. you can... Uh, Let's, you know, we, we're actually past the commercial break, but I don't want us to stop there. So I'm going to put you on hold, and then we'll talk a bit after the break, okay? Thank you very sure, much. Sure, my pleasure. Welcome back before the break with the caller. Let's go back to him now. Caller, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still okay. here. Okay. So before the break, um, you shared with us a story of yourself and your life especially about your sister who when you were around 13 14 and she was three uh, she got diabetes and then had to deal with a lot of health issues that were also very painful and i think traumatic for you to watch and experience and the the uh, concept of survivor's guilt seems to resonate with you but it seems hard for you to deal with that and so you're asking me what what could you do next is that right yeah, uh, I, I, my question could be uh, if, if, if as a somebody that has survival guilt, uh, how can we separate this survival guilt from living happy now, yeah. or uh, or what are the three steps that somebody can c- come to you, and what are the first three steps that I mean like you do for that person sure well there's a few things for us to for to to look at and for you to look at one is when we look at even guilt and the way you were talking about it guilt is about who's at fault for something that has happened and it seems like like i was saying before about it it can seem so unfair and senseless that a three-year-old girl is suffering in this way and it's hard to explain like why 
that is the case, I think it's hard for you still or you haven't got to a point where you've accepted what's happened as something that happened that was not that was unfair. No one is to blame for it, as in it definitely wasn't your fault for having sexual feelings or masturbating, which it seems like logically you've accepted, but I feel like emotionally might still be there. And even it's up to you to decide what that means for you as far as if you believe in God or if God did something or it was your sister's fault, which I, I think you don't see that as all, at all, but to see that maybe something bad happened, but there's no one to blame, that it's not your fault in any way, you didn't do something wrong, but maybe it was no one's fault, and unfortunately this can be part of life. It's not the only thing that life is only bad and unfair, but unfair things do happen in life, that sometimes things happen that are just sad or negative and there isn't some you know i don't like sometimes when people say everything happens for a reason i don't think i think that's just the way we say things to make ourselves feel better um or even if you think everything happens for a reason and you believe in god to think that you know why i think doesn't make sense but i, I don't know for me your sister going through what she went through i don't want to i don't think it's fair to say everything happens for a reason but it did happen and it doesn't mean it someone is to blame or that life is only that but something very unfortunate and unfair did happen but no one has to be to blame for it we don't have to point the finger to god or to your parents or to you that is responsible for this sad thing but it was very sad and maybe you're still stuck there that you haven't uh, you think it's someone's fault and that you have to forgive someone but maybe we don't but maybe you do have to forgive yourself to realize it wasn't your fault and I don't know if you've done that. I mean, like, probably I have done that. I don't feel that it's my fault. Okay. At, at the moment, maybe emotionally I feel like that. I, I'm not sure. I have to think about it. Yeah. But what I come to my mind is that after that event, I am very scared to open up to life. Mm-hmm. I am very scared to feel the life. And I am very scared to like anybody, probably because I feel like, People, people who I love, they will suffer me. Mm-hmm. I will suffer when they, when they are in pain. So it's better not to like people. It's, to not, not like people, probably it's more easy to like people yeah. and see them suffering. Well, it's, so, it's safer, yeah, or, or, or for you to suffer, yeah. I mean, you're right, and that's always going to be the case. To not love anyone is safer to not be in relationships is safer to not apply for a job is safer um all the things in life that open us up to get hurt um usually we can also get something out of it it's always going to be safer and so you're going to have to realize that that alarm that goes off for you even though we can understand it and you can respect it that that's the 14 year old boy saying be careful you can have this beautiful thing in your life you have this baby sister and something bad can happen, be careful, don't let yourself feel anything or feel too much for anyone. And you can acknowledge that 13, 14-year-old you, say, I understand you're scared, I understand it seems scary, but I have to go forward anyway. And you have to accept that it's going to feel risky because it is risky even if you haven't had the experience you had for everyone to let themselves fall in love or be in love or to have a child. All those things open us up to risk, but... It's, you have to ask yourself, do I feel that's worth it? Is that what I want? So I'm going to go forward anyway. So when you feel that anxiety or that feeling that tells you for sure this is wrong to feel something or to let yourself get attached to someone or feel love for someone, you have to try to hear where that's coming from. That alarm 
is an old alarm that's trying to protect you. But unfortunately, that protection is also going to keep you from living your life if you stay safe. If you just want to live a safe life, yes, you can never get, you can make it so you never get hurt, but then you won't experience life. So that's another part that you have to recognize is when that alarm goes off, it's like a smoke alarm that's a little bit too sensitive. That we understand, okay, even when I try to make toast, that one's going to go off. It doesn't mean I stop making toast. I just know it and I try to turn it off or ignore it if I have to and go forward. And that's going to be hard and easier said than done, but you have to take some risks of trusting and opening yourself up a little bit. So along with trying to heal that past, we can't just say, okay, I want you to heal the past before you do anything, because sometimes we use that as an excuse. And you can say, well, I'm still healing. Maybe when I'm 40 or when I'm 50, then I'll put myself out there. But that could be just the defense speaking rather than actually trying to heal. And that's for you to figure out how to balance that, of taking some of those risks while also healing the past. But So we have to recognize the pain that's there. And I'm sure there's still pain that you haven't maybe got in touch with of how hard it was to see your sister. I'm sure it's made you very sad, but maybe you haven't fully opened that wound to clean it all out because it was too painful. I mean, the way you're saying your uh, other sister was dealing with it, she was trying to avoid it, which you understand was too much to deal with, but maybe in some ways you've shut down too. You said you became numb. And so you might have to yeah, go... Yeah, I escaped from that home. Yeah. My, well, my strategy was to escape and, and right. was to, to get away from pain. And so I'm and saying you got to go into it. My strategy was to yeah. numb. And we both, we were the same age. We were like, uh, she was at the same age as me. And in the family, we are the most affected people. Uh, Let me stop you there. Both, uh, I'm so without relationship. sorry. I'm so sorry to cut you off. The only reason I'm doing this is we have about one minute left. I wish we had more time. What you're talking about oh. is very important, but it's the timing. I have to to end the show very soon. And so I will just say this. And like you said, you've, I'm sure you've both been very affected, even though you both avoided the feelings in different ways. She covered her eyes. You maybe shut down your feelings or left the home. But what I what I want y'all to realize is that one of the ways, you know, there's a a quote that I've heard attributed to many people, but I think it's very appropriate here. The only way out is through. The only way you're going to get to a better place is you have to go into the pain and through the pain. And some of it is that you maybe haven't fully experienced and let yourself feel all the pain from what you went through. It sounds like it's so much. So you might have to go into that pain even more than you have before and do some of the healing there which I would hope you can do it with therapy. You said you can't, but I'll let you figure that out. And then you might be able to come out the other side in a better space. I do have to wrap up the show. I, I wish we could talk some more. If you want to call another time, we'd be happy to speak with you, but I'll have to end our conversation here. I want here. to say one word. I, I have heard this quote from you, that you heard, and I wrote it somewhere, and I really loved it. But I, my answer was is that maybe it doesn't worth it go through right, yeah and there's no guarantee i can't guarantee you that i can just tell you that's the only path i can see for you and i hope you'll you'll at least try so you're right i can't guarantee you that you will go through and come out better and i don't want to make it seem easy and simple and 100 percent effective in some way but i think to me it seems like the most likely way to get to somewhere different is that you have to you can't go away from it you'll have to go through it but again i do have to wrap up thank you so much for calling wish you the best thank you thank you so much have a great uh, it's day. very helpful to talk to you oh you good i'm happy to hear that take care yep. okay all right thank you to that caller and all the rest of the callers thank you guys all that here in the studio you've been listening to in session with dr fatty delock we have a wonderful day Thank you.